Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against any covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I shall say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, uh, you, you are the greatest treasure of our soul. We know there's nothing in this world that compares to you, Jesus, that all the wealth that we might be able to accrue for ourselves isn't worth a penny compared to the treasures of God that are your, ours uh, through you and the inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Uh, so Jesus, this morning, would you help us to loosen our grip on all the stuff that we accumulate and all the things that you give us? Would we see ourselves as humble stewards who want to live for your approval and for your honor. And we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. A few years back, a friend of mine invited me. Uh, He said, I will purchase your lunch, Tommy. Come to the fine eating establishment known as Denny's. So we got together, and I was just digging into my moons over my hammy, happy as a clam, when he dropped the bomb on me. He said, "Uh, Tommy... I brought you here with a bit of an ulterior motive. I have a business proposition for you that you are just not going to believe. And he was right. At that moment, I knew I probably was not going to believe the next thing he said because I'm a bit of a skeptical person. But then he said something that took me off guard. He asked me a question. He said, Tommy, imagine for me, if you could have all the money in the world, have no financial restrictions whatsoever, what would your life be like? Now, in that moment, I have to admit that my soul almost slipped. I immediately started conjuring images in my heart and my mind. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to live in that sort of a house, to go on that sort of a vacation, to wear that sort of a suit? All the good things that I could store up for myself and the security I could have from money and the things it brings in this world. Now, thanks be to God that dream or delusion didn't last for long, and I certainly didn't take him up on his business proposition. But it does bring us to a very alluring temptation that we all face again and again, living when and where we do. Uh, The temptation to want wealth for ourselves. Lots of good things that we could buy, lots of great ways we could spend that money, if only we could have a little more of it. Well, we've reached a point in Luke's gospel where Jesus and his disciples are on the road of discipleship. 
Uh, There's this movement in Luke's gospel where from here forward, Jesus and his disciples are on the road toward Jerusalem, to the place where Jesus will suffer and die and accomplish his purpose. And along the way, they have a number of conversations. They walk and they talk. And in so doing, Jesus reveals what it means to follow him on that road of discipleship for us as well. On the next three weeks, we're going to come to a series of ditches that he wants us to avoid, ditches of greed and envy and selfish living. And the antidote to it is to learn to live as a steward. So we'll spend three weeks on stewardship. Uh, Stewardship is merely that your life and everything in it does not belong to you. It's all given to you to be used in service to your master, Jesus. Uh, That includes your time, your talent, and yes, your treasure. This morning, that's where the focus will be. Uh, How following Christ affects our checkbook. I'll give you a a one-sentence summary of the sermon this morning. It's this. Wanting wealth for yourself is eternally foolish. Wanting wealth for yourself is eternally foolish. We'll see that in two sections. Uh, First, Jesus gives a warning about wanting more wealth in verses 13 through 15. Uh, Since it's been a few weeks since we're in Luke's gospel, you may have forgotten. uh, Jesus and his disciples were surrounded by a crowd made of many thousands of people. So many of them that they're crushing upon Jesus. You can feel his popularity building pressure. Well, in the midst of that, someone cries out to Jesus A man who has a matter of money that he's coming to Jesus to help with. In verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, Chances are you have already figured this out, that when a loved one with money dies, it can become a very tenuous time for family bonds. Uh, People can get into squabbles about who should own what how big a slice of the pie they deserve, all made more difficult by the guilt, the the grief that uh, compounds the situation. Well, as bad as that is today, it was even worse back then. Uh, That's because the primary ways that people acquired wealth was through inheritance. If you were to be a landowner, chances are you did not earn enough money to buy it on your own. Almost certainly, you inherited that land from your father, which means almost certainly you were particularly the firstborn son. Uh, That was the son who was expected to carry on the family business and values. Now, as a result, unless there was special plans made before the patriarch died, uh, the firstborn basically got to rule the roost. He got to decide how the money was handled. And more than a few families found themselves envious and looking for ways to get a bigger slice of the pie for themselves than the other siblings that left behind. Well, that seems to be the occasion here. Uh, This man doesn't feel like he's getting uh, his fair share. And so he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to be the mediator between him and his brother. And to be sure, rabbis used to do that sort of thing. They were common mediators for these sort of disputes. Which makes Jesus' response really strange. Because Jesus is borderline rude to the guy. Verse 14 But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Uh, The way that 
is written in the original, it's a, a bit like saying, hey, buddy, back off. It's really strong. And uh, it's not as if Jesus has any lack of authority to be able to help in a dispute like this. I mean, one day Jesus himself is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He'll judge the very hearts and inner secrets of every person. Certainly he can handle a family dispute about some pennies. So why did Jesus respond this way? Well, it's because Jesus, when he is asked a question, so often he looks past the initial question presented to him to the heart of the person asking it. He knows this man is not coming to him with a pure heart, wanting to know how a disciple of his ought to react in a situation like this. No, he sees Jesus as a resource to be leveraged. Jesus is a means to an end, a way to get more money for himself. And Jesus isn't interested in playing that game. Now, I wish I could say that we live at a time when nobody would ever try and use Jesus like that. Uh, but if you turn on your TV or go looking on the internet, you can find people that will try and convince you of the exact thing, that Jesus is a spiritual resource to be leveraged. If you just know that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And of course, if you would just conveniently send a very large donation to the ministry in, that is telling you that message, then of course you too can have your bigger slice of the pie. Now, friends, if anyone tries to preach to you a message like that, turn around and run the other way as fast as you can. Uh, Jesus consistently warns us to be skeptical about the desire for wealth. Now, we'll see in a second, that does not mean that he says we can't own property or support ourselves. Uh, but Jesus tells us that it, wealth is actually a great difficulty when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. Uh, he knows that this man finds himself loving much wealth and looking for ways that he can save wealth for himself. And Jesus wants nothing to do with that. I realize even if you aren't attracted to the prosperity gospel, uh, there are more subtle ways you can have this tendency at work in your heart. Uh, do you ever find yourself showing up to church more often when you are maybe in the running for a promotion at work? Could it be you're thinking that you might, even subconsciously thinking, somehow leverage the resources of Jesus into your dream job? Uh, maybe you find yourself in debt up to your eyeballs and suddenly, all of a sudden, your prayer life is rekindled. Now, it's good to pray no matter what situation you're in. But please don't think that you can somehow manipulate Jesus into solving your financial problems. Uh, Jesus isn't a means to, to an end. He is the end pursuit of our desires. The highest good we could ever have. The true wealth for our souls. So Jesus, he, he won't play this guy's game. But what he does do is use this as an occasion for a warning for all of us. And that's what we see in verse 15. He speaks then to the crowd. And he said to them, that's everybody. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, Jesus uses, again, very stark language. Take care. Be on guard. It's like if you're sitting in a room and everyone's iPhone starts blaring at once. A tornado's on the way. Pay attention. What's the warning about? Well, something that we don't think much about these days, coveting. Uh, the Bible warns consistently against coveting. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Tenth Commandment, don't covet anything your neighbor has. Not his house, 
not his donkey, not his wife, not, none of it. Um, and yet we live at a time where people oftentimes think greed is good. Uh, what is coveting? It is that strong impulse in your heart that thinks, I should have that. Uh, I should be the one living in that house. Uh, I should be the one going on that lavish vacation. Uh, I should be the one wearing those fine threads. Now, none of those things on their own are necessarily sinful. But there is a sinful desire that very easily takes root in each one of our hearts. Where we think, I could have just a little bit more. And then I would be satisfied. But friends, the... The, the, the horrible thing about a coveting heart and the desires that come with it is there are desires that will never be satisfied. It's like trying to quench your thirst with seawater. The more you drink, the more thirsty you become. My wife and I were listening yesterday to uh, an audiobook called Silas Marner. It has a character that finds himself a, a recluse all he has left is his work as a weaver. And he weaves and he weaves. And he finds a sort of satisfaction, not in the things he makes or in the way he blesses people by making good quality products, but by the gold he gets in compensation. He dreams about it. He imagines his bag getting fuller and fuller. His imagination and his heart are illuminated by the glow of it. And the greater his desire for more gold becomes, the more diminished his soul becomes. He becomes bent and smaller and looks older as that covetous desire gets greater and greater. Now, it could be the allure of seeing bigger numbers in your bank account does it for you, but most people, it's wanting to have more stuff, uh, more things that you can enjoy, more comfort, more experiences. But let's rec recognize that no matter how much God gives us, there's always room for more. And that desire will never be satisfied on this earth. Uh, which is why we need to cultivate the opposite of a covetous heart, which is a content heart. Uh, a heart that finds contentment in the grace of God, the gospel even. Uh, realize that nothing that we have is truly earned. Uh, none of us earn salvation before God. And none of us can earn even the livings that we spend our time producing because we are inhabiting bodies God gave us with skills he entrusted to us. That means what we have is given to us by God intentionally. It's a gift. And he intends for us to be grateful and even satisfied with what we have, whether that's a lot or a little. Uh, I saw this play out in someone's life that I was close to. Uh, he'd been a business owner for some time, working really, really hard to make a name for himself and certainly to produce plenty for him and his family. He was honest in that, his dealings. He wasn't stealing or doing anything underhanded, but undoubtedly his business consumed the vast majority of his efforts in his life. Uh, until finally, the, some financial situations arose that were outside his control, and he lost everything. He ended up declaring bankruptcy. Uh, that was a hard, hard pill for him to swallow. Uh, but years later, I was sitting with him, and I noticed he was much more relaxed. 
I would say, even more content than he was when he was making a lot of money at the height of his business. And I asked him about it. He said, you know what? At the time, it was the worst thing in the world to lose my business, but now I thank God it happened. I realized how rich I am. I have a family that loves me, and I live in a comfortable house, and I've always had enough to eat. Now, it's remarkable how we can always assume that just a little bit more would satisfy us. And when we get a little bit more, our standard just shifts upward. And we want more and more and more. Uh, I found a study uh, back in 2017. It was measuring people's perceptions of their peers based on income level. So if you take people that make the same amount of money and you ask them, how do you think that person who's in the same general category of you is doing financially compared to you? Now, the fascinating thing is no matter what income level you were, you were in, you always assumed that your peers were doing better than you were. Which meant the, no matter how much money you made, you chronically felt underpaid and you always had reason to wish your life was like your peers. In other words, it's never enough. Uh, brothers and sisters, let's not allow this covetous heart to take root. Let's realize this desire that Jesus is warning against certainly could take hold in each and every one of our hearts this morning if we let it. That we need to cultivate contentment and gratitude and be thankful for what you have. Uh, recognizing that by historical standards, each and every one of us is filthy rich. We, I don't think any one of us has missed a meal this week unless we desired to miss that meal. Historically, that's unusual. Uh, let's realize all that we've received. Uh, be content and have gratitude and not be coveting. Uh, but Jesus comes at the same topic from a different angle. That's what we see second in the tragedy of mislaid treasure in 16 through 21. Uh, this time he uses a parable in order to get his point across slightly differently. And as always, parables, um, they work best when they take you off guard. So I'm going to try and recreate the drama of this story for you. We're told there's a man who is a landowner of some sort. And the land he owns is meant to be cultivated. And... Uh, he has a wonderful problem. He has a bumper crop. He's got more grain than he knows what to do with. Grain coming out of his ears. So he decides he's got to do something about this. He can't just leave it to rot in the field. So he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. So that he can keep track of all of his grains, store it up, and use it. So far, so good. Only there's... A subtext through the whole story that gives us a hint that right from the beginning, something's a little off. Uh, because even as this guy starts speaking, immediately we notice that his soliloquy is very self-focused. Eleven times he refers to himself, I and my, what shall I do? I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger barns for myself. Eleven times. And there's not a single mention of anyone else, not a needy person, not a neighbor, and certainly not anything in reference to the God who made him prosper in such a way. Uh, all of that tells us that he's not off to a good start, but it really gets hairy when he starts describing not what, just what he's immediately going to do, but why he's going to do it. In verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, 
you have ample goods and grain. Uh, uh, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Uh, his plan is to kick back and enjoy the finer things. Uh, to live off of his bumper crop and to enjoy each and every one of a long series of days that have been secured because he has enough stuff. Okay, that's the setup. And now here comes the big surprise. Verse 20, then God speaks. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Uh, this man that up until now had seemed rather reasonable, if a little self-focused, it turns out in heaven's perspective is the most foolish of all. He's living a lifestyle that will lead to eternal regret. Uh, God, after calling him a fool, tells him why. It uh, turns out his life will not be a never-ending string of good days. No, in fact, his life was on loan, and that loan is about to expire. Which means he's not going to enjoy any of that stuff that he's stored up in his big old barns. Now that'll be left for whoever comes to pick up the pieces after he's gone. Now, that's a shocking end to a story. And Jesus gives an application to it. Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, Jesus says through this parable that we must learn to be rich, not toward ourselves, not wealth for ourselves, but true lasting riches by being rich toward God. Well, how do we respond to this? Three lessons of stewardship for us. The first is to learn that our life is on loan. It was surely a shock to the man in the story that there were, uh, was a hidden uh, terms of use related to his earthly life. But it's true for each and every one of us. None of us caused ourselves to be born. None of us can cause our life to go a single day longer than God intends for it to go. We belong body and soul to God, and he determines the number of our days. And that means that each of our days is meant to be used as long as he lends it to us for his purpose. Not imagining that we're here to satisfy ourselves. Uh, the man in the story was living a self-focused and therefore a foolish life. Because he lost sight of the fact that God lent him the life he lived. Uh, let's not lose sight of that ourselves as stewards. We have the time we have with the resources we have and the place we are in because God gave it to us. It means we need to ask the question, what am I to use this life with these resources for? Second lesson, not just that your life is on loan, but your wealth is not your own. Uh, this man assumed that he was prospered so that he could store up wealth for himself and live a good, long, happy, and joyful, enjoying his life. Uh, but it turned out that God had other plans, that someone else was going to enjoy all that wealth. The same thing can happen for each of us. Uh, God gives us resources. He intends for us not just to ask how we can use them on ourselves, 
but how we can use them to bless others. Uh, once got to know a family that was greatly blessed by the Lord. And one of the things they were blessed by was a wonderful lake house right on Lake Michigan. Uh, undoubtedly a very, very high ticket item right there. And yet they didn't use it just for themselves. They, they made sure that that lake house was filled with the Lord's purposes. Uh, they let churches use it for retreats. They invited missionaries to come and have times of furlough there. Uh, they were rich toward God by knowing that what they owned was not their own. It was God's. He has only given it to them to steward for a time. So our life is on loan. What we own is not our own. Third, I think most importantly to us as Christians then, is that brings us to a response we are to have. And that is to respond in the grace of giving. I think the gospel naturally pushes our heart this way. Uh, Jesus next week, we'll see, will tell us, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the dynamic is pretty obvious then. The more you treasure Christ, the more it will be reflected in your checkbook and the way you steward the resources that Christ has given you. Uh, we, when we dwell on what we've received in Christ, we have no shortage of grace to draw on. Uh, he who was the very prince of heaven with all the glory and wealth that is eternal and unfading. As the prince of heaven, he came down to earth to save pitiable sinners like us. People that stood beneath a debt we could never afford to pay off. And yet Jesus prayed it freely in his blood, all by his grace, so that we can be forgiven. And so that we can know that we have an eternal, unfading inheritance waiting for us. That we are in fact adopted sons and daughters of the king. And that whatever we give up in this life will be a pittance compared to the plenty that's waiting for us. And the more we allow that to grip us, the more it'll naturally come out in the way we respond through giving. I've been reading this book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. It's got a bunch of wonderful uh, insight into how a Christian should think about material possessions. Uh, one of the lines I like most is just, describes what happens when God gives us more as Christians. He said, God doesn't give us more to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Uh, you see, it's not wrong to use a certain amount of the money that God gives us for ourselves. If you take the whole New Testament, uh, it's not anti-money or anti-property. Uh, in fact, there's uh, passages that are dedicated to saying that we should all aim for honest, hard work so we could support ourselves and not be a burden to others. And yet, so often, God not only provides what's needed for us to have dinner and a shirt on our back and a roof over our heads, he also provides more than we need. And in those moments, God intends for us to, before him, loosen our grip on our worldly wealth so that we can store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Uh, this is the discipline of Christian giving, of trusting what Jesus says here, that we need to help our hearts not to covet. And when we do, that we actually receive something far greater, more of the grace of Jesus and more joy in turn. Now, let's remember, Jesus does not need our money. There's no shortage of money in heaven. 
Uh, he, if, even if he were short on cash, he wouldn't come asking you, trust me. Now he's saying this for our good. Because he wants our eternal joy. He wants for that moment when the loan of our life comes due to not be a moment of regret, but one where we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, so how does this actually work out? I'm going to be as practical as I can at this point. Um, some of the best advice that Precious and I received was during our premarital counseling. Uh, someone encouraged us, even though we didn't have much at that point, except a lot of student debt and a lease on a basement apartment with spotty plumbing. They encouraged us to carefully consider how we would give of what the Lord had provided. Now, I, I don't want to pretend that Precious and I give the highest percentage of anyone in this room or the highest amount, anything like that. But I can honestly tell you, before the Lord... Each and every time we've done our family budget, we have started with this question, what would the Lord have us give of what he has provided? And that has not been a burden. It actually has produced incredible joy because when we give for a moment, the spell of materialism loses its power over your soul. Uh, you see beyond the things right in front of you to the eternal things beyond them. Uh, when you provide some of your resources to your local church. Uh, you start to notice the way the ministries are run. Uh, you find even more joy when someone comes to Christ through the ministries of your church. And you start saying, praise God, I'm a part of something that will outlast this world, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, when you give money so someone can go on a mission trip to catch a vision for what it is to serve the Lord across cultures. And then they come back and they they tell this story of what God did and the way they were surprised and maybe even one day they end up in the mission field over the long term. You get this joyful knowledge in that moment that you invested in something eternal. When you see a need, a need that God brought to your attention that no one else knows about and you come in secret and you provide in a way that just floors the person that they know for sure that God provided for them and he used your hands to do it. In that moment, you get to have joy in a way you wouldn't have otherwise if your hands were closed on the wealth of this world. Uh, you see, brothers and sisters, we need to give. We can't afford not to. For the sake of our hearts, we need more grace from Jesus, more joy in him. And we need to fight off covetousness which is ready to swallow us up whole if we let it. Now, in all of this, it's very important not to fall into another ditch, and that is legalism. Uh, to think that somehow we should be measuring how much each other gives, comparing to one another. Uh, or even to think, because I gave more one year than another, that God must love me more that year. Let's remember again, God doesn't need our resources. We need to give for the sake of our own hearts and our own joy. And uh, I, I do think that this is a good reason for our, for our giving off, uh, most often to be done in secret. Now, it's not always a sin to tell people that you gave something. Uh, but when Jesus said to give in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand does, so that your heavenly Father would reward you, I think that that principle should guide much of how we do our treasuring of Christ through our checkbook. Now, one of the ways we apply that here at Castleton 
is that the pastors do not have access to any of the giving records. I don't know who gives or when they give or how often they give. Um, so I'm not preaching this sermon because I have any one of you in mind or because generally I'm worried about the finances of our church. Uh, this is just the next passage. And if Jesus said it, I've got to say it. We've got to believe, you have to believe it. But that doesn't mean just because no one knows through our church's administration how much you give, that what you give is unimportant. Now, each of us needs to decide cheerfully, willingly, and with fear and trembling how much we should let go of for the sake of treasuring Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been practicing the discipline of giving for years, I praise God for that. Uh, I know many of you faithfully support our church and uh, many other ministries and missionaries. Be encouraged. The Lord sees all of that. Even if no one else knows about it, you are receiving far more than you are giving away. Keep it up. But maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling some conviction. Maybe you feel as if you have been storing up wealth for yourself. Or maybe you've never given anything away, as far as you know, at least for the Lord's purposes. Uh, now realize that there is grace for all manner of sins in Christ. There needs to be no condemnation, even when it comes to talking about money. Uh, but the important thing is today's today, the day to hear Jesus' warning and to start being rich toward God instead of treasuring the things of this world. Now, if you don't know where to start, I think the easiest thing to do is whatever you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to give, immediately act on it. A first gift to someone that he brings in your path or to drop in the uh, uh, deposit box on the book wall, whatever it is, act on it before the enemy can distract you and allure you again with the things of this world. I think then beyond that, you need to come up with a plan. If you've never done that, of how to put together a plan for carefully considered giving, um, one of the great resources our church has is uh, believers of different ages and stages. If you find someone who's been a Christian for any length of time and shows any sort of spiritual maturity, I bet if you ask them, could you help me sort through how I think about giving as a Christian, they would probably be a wealth of information to you. Um, Let's realize that this is, again, is not something that God is doing to harm us or to sap our joy. Quite the opposite. Uh, because the more we treasure God, the less we'll treasure the things of this world. Uh, the, when we pry our fingers open off the things that God's given us, we'll receive more freely the grace that's already available to us. So brothers and sisters, when you hear your call from Jesus this morning on the road of discipleship, uh, there are ditches on both sides that want to swallow you. Greed and envy and treasuring the things of this world. But you have someone so much greater, something that can never be taken from you. Would you live for him? And would you hear his call to you to treasure and live a life rich toward God and not the things of this world. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song that has this as one of the prominent themes within it. Listen to some of the words from that song. My wealth is in the cross. There's nothing more I want than just to know his love. My heart is set on Christ and I will count all else as loss the greatest of my crowns, 
means nothing to me now. I've counted up the cost and all my wealth is in the cross. Amen, brothers and sisters. Would we pray with me? Jesus, we don't want to be the sort of people that have a rude awakening on the day that the loan of our lives expires. Uh, We want to live in such a way that we are rich toward God, that we treasure you, Christ. So would you help us to spot the coveting heart that could so easily draw us away and drain the joy from our souls? Uh, Would you help us to see beyond the stuff that we could accrue for ourselves in this world and instead help us to value the things that are eternal, to even find joy as you give us the grace needed to give ourselves and to be a part of the way you work in this world? Uh, Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you were the most generous of all in giving yourself And now that you lavish us by your grace so that we are never going to be outgiven, that as much as we pour out, we know we will receive far more from you, certainly in this world, but even more so in the world to come. So Jesus, help us now to respond with hearts filled with gratitude and thankfulness and contentment. Help us to worship, we pray in your name. Amen.